Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, I have a special guest today. I have limited time with her, so I'm going to get to her in just a moment. Let me introduce her. She is the author of the 2018 New York Times New York Times bestselling book, Dope Sick, uh, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Companies That Addicted America. Beth Macy is a journalist and author. Uh, the book now has been uh, presented in a dramatized adaptation on Hulu, eight-episode uh, series. It came out in October. Just just came out. Um, Mary drew upon 30 years of reporting from southwestern Virginia communities, and her work uh, has long sought to bring attention to um, so many people that have suffered from this illness. Welcome, Beth Macy to the program. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I want to give a shout out to our good friends at Blue Mics. If you've heard my voice on this show anytime over the past year, including right now, you've been listening to Blue Microphones. And let me tell you, after more than 30 years in broadcasting, I don't think I have ever sounded better. But you don't need to be a pro or have a fancy studio to benefit from a quality mic. You may not realize it, but if you've been working from home or using Zoom to chat with friends, you probably spend a lot of time in front of a microphone. So why not sound your best? Whether you're doing video conferencing, podcasting, recording music, or hosting a talk show, Blue has you covered. From the USB series that plugs right into your computer to XLR professional mics like the mouse or the Blueberry we use in the studio right now. Bottom line, there's a Blue microphone to fit your budget and need. I can't say enough about Blue mics, and once you try one, you will never go back, trust me. To take your audio to the next level, go to drdrew.com blue. That is drdrew.com B-L-U-E. Anyone who's watched me over the years knows that I'm obsessed with Hydrolyte. In my opinion, the best oral rehydration product on the market. I literally use it every day. My family uses it. When I had COVID, I'm telling you, Hydrolyte contributed to my recovery, kept me hydrated. Now, with things finally reopening back around the country, the potential exposure to the common cold is always around. And like always, Hydrolyte has got your back. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity, my new favorite, starts with their fast-absorbing electrolytes and adds a host of great ingredients Plus, each single-serving easy-pour drink mix contains 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C, 300 milligrams of elderberry extract. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity comes in convenient, easy-to-pour sticks that rapidly dissolve in water, make a great-tasting drink, has 75% less sugar than your typical sports drink, uses all-natural flavors, gluten-free, dairy-free, caffeine-free, non-GMO, and even vegan. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity is also now available in ready-to-drink bottles at the Walmart next to the pharmacy, or as always, you can find it by visiting hydrolyte.com slash drdrew. Again, that is H-Y-D-R-A-L-Y-T-E dot com slash D-R-D-R-E-W. Be sure to use the code drdrew25 for a special discount. Beth, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Drew. So I, I don't want to start this conversation because I have limited time with you. So I don't want to start with what made you write the book. Let, let me first turn over all my cards. Uh, I, I ran a large addiction recovery program for 25 years. And and it was a full, uh, I, I mean, we could handle anything. I, we had a reputation for no matter how sick somebody was, provided they didn't need a ventilator, we could handle them. The psychiatric component, the medical component, the addiction component, 
So I saw the sickest of the sick. And towards the last maybe five years of my career running that program, I was almost exclusively taking patients off opiates uh, who allegedly had pain. Uh, the pain would always, they would always come in saying their pain is a 20 out of 10, 15 out of 10. And with merely taking them off opiates, they would go down to a four or five out of 10. And they would literally down, dance out of the hospital. We would have them into the process of recovery and abstinence. And because they're addicts, they would go back to their, their doctors and the doctors would look at them and go, why aren't you listening to me? I'm the doctor. You need to take these pain medicines the rest of your life. Why do you listen to those people who are trying to brainwash you? And my patients were dying hand over fist. I mean, they were just, they were killing them. My peers were killing my patient at such an accelerated rate, I could not stand it. And I, so I began fighting this years before your book, years before anybody else found out about it. And because of the way the, uh, the discipline of uh, opioid prescribing took over uh, American medicine, I was uh, looked after by the Department of Mental Health and the State Board of Medical Quality Assurance and my hospital administration for being draconian and behind the times and such a, an outlying dinosaur and was interested in patient suffering. And I knew I was right. I knew I was right. And I knew the medical community was killing my patients. That's where I come from. So that's what I went through for years and years and years and years. So uh, the, the, what you observed was not a surprise to me. Not a surprise mm -hmm. to me. Uh, was it a surprise to you? Well, I first started reporting on what we then called the heroin epidemic. We now call it the overdose epidemic because it's more than just heroin. But this was about 2012. And I was a newspaper reporter in Roanoke, Virginia. And I wrote a lot about marginalized communities and inner city issues. But the story on everybody's mind uh, the summer of 2012 was the fact that there was this nascent heroin cell. And it was um, among private school kids in the wealthiest suburbs uh, of, our, of our community. And I, so I did this three-part series about these two families who had been, uh, who, their lives had been upended by, the heroin crisis and one uh, young gentleman died of overdose and the other was about to go to prison for his role in um, having sold the heroin to his former private school classmates. And when I wrote this series, mm -hmm. this is 2012, this is before the deaths of despair data, this is before Dreamland or before we really even knew that the Oxycontin and heroin epidemics were, were tied together, um, readers were really shocked. And so, um, Fast forward to 2015, I decided to write a proposal for my third book telling the story of how we got here. And because I'm a Virginia reporter, I, I wanted Virginia to stand in as a microcosm for three different kinds of communities in America. One is a distressed rural community where Oxycontin really first emerged, where Purdue targeted their reps to former coal mining and logging uh, area of um, far Southwest Virginia, Appalachia, basically. And then, um, you know, of course, when the pills got hard to get, that's when I pick up the story in Roanoke, when I first knew of it, when people made the switch from uh, pills to heroin, and then more recently to fentanyl. And um, I literally drove up and down I-81, the interstate, which people called the heroin highway because that was the route that many of the drugs came in. And I was surprised, I was surprised that it had only gotten worse. And when I went back and I interviewed the first person who had sent the young man to federal prison, he said what made him 
what what made the hair stand up on the back of his neck, what made him not sleep at night, and this is back in, this is actually 2010, when he arrested the young man, uh, Spencer, was that they were using and dealing with 50 different kids from this wealthy suburb. And so it's just the tippy tip of the iceberg. And because we know it's such a hard thing to recover from, I knew it was was not gonna go away overnight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 2010 is where I got out because I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. And, and I could see what was happening, which was the, now we had a situation where there was a growing, slow, uh, burgeoning understanding that they'd created drug addicts. The patients would come in for their refills. The doctor would say, you're a bad patient, get out of here. And you tell an opiate addict that they're a bad patient. You and you, as opposed to come, bringing them in and going, look, we didn't, you, neither you nor I intended to create the second problem. We have a second problem. You're addicted to these drugs. Let's get you some treatment. What they did was said, get out of here, you're a bad patient. And of course, mm -hmm. the patients went to the street. Mm -hmm. That's where the heroin came Patient from. Patient abandonment. And, and it's still the number one yep. uh, barrier, I think, is just we abandon well, them on the now it's now going level. The, it's now, yeah, it's going the other way now with chronic pain patients who need some opioids, who should be getting them, can't yeah. get them. So we have now the opposite problem. But but at least it's not killing people. Well, not at the rate it was killing people at the time, because it, it was unbelievable uh how much how much I, I i was just shocking to me but how did your uh understanding of what was going reconcile with what sam quinone just wrote in greenland greenland rather yeah so his book mostly takes place on the west coast and uh with the mexican cartels um we weren't seeing black tar heroin and still aren't seeing black tar heroin here in roanoke where i live or in any of the communities that i report from um, well, his, his big thing, his big report was his his big his big argument in the book is how the medical community caused the opiate epidemic, how, how yeah, the true. discipline of pain management, how pain is the fifth vital sign, how insurance companies right. and qual and board of medical quality insurances and Jayco all demanded that we don't paint the patient's pulse, we ask them what their pain scale is, which was a level yeah. of insanity that was just mind boggling. And that if a patient left a hospital with less than 90 pills, you were considered abusing the patient and could not just malpractice, you could go to jail for being yeah, abusive to yeah. the patient for inadequate treatment of pain. This, this right. is where it he came from. He also writes about it, Porter and Jick, the Porter and Jick study that so many of the less than 1% data comes from. Wasn't a study. Really wasn't a study. Dopesick show really well. It wasn't a study at all. It was a five sentence letter to the editor of the New England Journal. Right. So the show right. really breaks that down in a dramatic way. How that happened. How right. so many people right. were quoting that study without ever reading the original study, which was it wasn't a study. Right. It was a letter. It was a Porterjic letter, and there there was a study with some observations on inpatients, post-surgical patients receiving opiates, not becoming dependent in a short period of time. Yeah, no kidding. It, it really. In a hospital uh, yeah. It, yeah, in a hospital setting. It was it was so awful. You know, literally, I had peers telling me that addiction didn't exist, and that and that if you had a pain patient, you couldn't get addicted because the pain soaked up. The, the addictive potential of the drug soaked up mm -hmm. the high. It, it yeah. was so off base. Yeah, or I you mean, were pseudo addicted. You were pseudo addicted. You remember that great phrase by the uh, Purdue's medical person, Dr. Yep. David Haddock, yep. who said, um, yep. you, you weren't showing a signs of addiction. You were simply pseudo addicted and the cure was more Oxycontin.
That's right. And, and, but he wasn't a minority. He, he came out of a discipline that was not that he would not have been in a minority opinion. It's not like he was some crazy outlier just responding to the uh, obviously he was responding to the motivations of the company. But there was an army of physicians that not just agreed with him. We're literally taking board certifying exams that demanded that as answers for their board exams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things I write about in the new book, which comes out next year, is just the way we haven't treated, we haven't taught doctors how to deal with addiction or how to deal with pain. I mean, we're still producing doctors right. Right. that don't know how to recognize and treat uh, right. a, a medical condition that kills 96,000 people right. in the last year. I completely agree with you 100%. So so you have uh, Raising Lazarus. Can you tell me mm -hmm. about that? Yeah, so it's 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 about solutions. Dopesick was about the problem, Raising Lazarus is about the solutions. And I was when I finished Dopesick, the young woman I had been following at the end ends up murdered after being abandoned by many systems. And I thought I can't I don't have the mental fortitude to write about this ever again. And then as I went out traveling um, to talk about the book, I started, you know, doing more reporting. Uh, people started telling me cool things that, that were happening. And then I just decided I wasn't going to let it go. So I went back and I'm, I'm telling the story of uh, the Purdue bankruptcy case is kind of the through line uh, through the perspective of some of the activists that are trying to get the victims' voices heard in this very opaque uh, bankruptcy court. Uh, but I'm also going back and forth through several communities that are doing harm reduction. They're, they're meeting people where they are. They're helping uh, homeless folks who, who, who suffer from SUD and um, are doing things like treating people in jail instead of you know, making them get off their drugs releasing them when they're opioid naive, and we know they're then 29 times more likely to die of overdose. So I'm trying to write about the innovators and the helpers, and it was a great bomb to, um, it's not a happy story because we still have 88% treatment gap. So lots of work to do, um, but I'm hoping that the book could be kind of a guidebook uh, for this opioid litigation money coming out. Yeah, I, I have grave concerns about what's now happening in the addiction treatment field because there are people that call themselves experts that really don't understand this disease and, and have almost no psychiatric training sometimes. Uh, so it's it's gravely concerning and it is not a one-size-fits-all treatment paradigm by any mean. Um, right. And I know John Kelly at Harvard and uh, Keith Humphreys at Stanford who run the programs there are very concerned about these things. Um, and... With the, uh, the the unfortunate reality is that so many of the addicts are so far gone uh, out on the streets that all you can do is half measures, that you can't really go into comprehensive treatment because people are uh, psychotic and, you know, it's yeah. chronic liberty. Well, that's why the, the importance of um, meeting them where they are is so key, and which is like the main concept of harm reduction. My book opens next to a dumpster in a McDonald's parking lot uh, with a nurse practitioner doing uh, treatment to a person who isn't in any kind of medical system. He's in North Carolina where they haven't uh, passed the Medicaid expansion. He's between jobs, he doesn't have insurance. And this harm reduction group has figured out a way to offer folks uh, entrees into care, giving them sterile syringes um, 
and then setting them up with buprenorphine, um, uh, you know, until they're ready to do something more intensive. So do we have long-term data on any of those patients? Because my, my gravest criticism of all addiction research is it never goes out more than six months. And you can do almost anything with six months. I mean, you can, you can get all kinds of great data in six months, but at three years and six years, it's a whole different matter. Do they have any longer term yeah, data? And, and John Kelly has just re-upped his study. You know, he said it took eight years and five to six treatment attempts to get somebody with uh, SUD just one year of sobriety. And now he is- just, that's, um, just, that's, just, that's, just, that's just severe alcoholics. That, that, that data that you're reporting is from John Kelly's reporting on not drug addicts, severe alcoholics. Yeah, it may be worse SUD. for drug addicts. Well, that's what he said. He but just updated it. And not, he said, not, not SUD, AUD, not SUD, not SUD, AUD, alcohol A -A use disorder, not SUD, okay. not, it, it's, uh, it's just okay. strictly alcohol, which suggests that it might be longer for other more addictive drugs or more, more prognostically. Well, yeah, his, his latest data that he just shared with me in the last month uh, said that it took two to three years longer for people with OUD, opioid use disorder, because of because they're so far out of the system. And, you know, we know that 40% of folks don't want treatment. And that's, that's the people we've got to go after. We've got to give them those carrots of the clean needles and other social supports if we want them to survive. I, I've never met a drug addict that wanted treatment. Uh, the only time that they appear, appear somewhat motivated is when the consequences are so severe that the pain of continuing is worth considering treatment. But I, the part I've met numerous people who wanted treatment and couldn't get it and fell apart whenever they lost their access to it. So we must be talking and, to so wait, wait, wait. Folks. So hold on. So so wait a minute. So when they lose access to the drugs, then they want treatment. Is that that group? No, I'm talking about, well, no. if you read Dope Sick, there's a young woman I followed for a couple of years. And whenever she lost her Medicaid coverage, or uh, whenever she didn't have access to her buprenorphine, she ended up homeless and doing sex work. She oh, desperately that's, that's wanted treatment. She desperately no, no, no. wanted treatment. Of course they want. She couldn't get it no, 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 because no, she you, wasn't in a different... expansion state. That's ongoing care. People that people that understand that treatment is worthwhile and get ongoing care want to continue their care. But naive patients, people who've never been treated for addiction before, it's very hard to get them to want to take treatment. Even when they tell you they want to take it, they don't. They don't stay with it. They don't want it. That's they don't, the, that's they don't the admit they have a disease. problem still. Yeah. Are they still in right. that right. position of not admitting it? What do um, you think not is the admitting answer, it, Doctor? I, I, but not admitting it, I almost never ran into people that didn't admit it. They all go, I'm just, I'm just not ready. I just want to keep doing it. It's not, it's not I'm not, you know, I, I'd like to try. Probably I should. They're very contemplative about it, but they're actual doing it. No, no, no. Tomorrow, 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 I'll stop. Tomorrow, I'll stop. Tomorrow, I'll stop. That, that's the way they always, I think about it. And that's the that's not been, Honestly, I, that's not been my experience reporting for the new book. Um, and and I, I have spent a lot of time at needle exchanges and with harm reduction groups. And these are folks that are coming for services and uh, they're not all ready, but, but many of them are. And, um, you know, like I say, in these, these states that haven't yet passed the Medicaid expansion, it's really, really tough when they don't have insurance. Yeah, the the fact that we have an IMD exclusion is bizarre. It's just terrible. Uh, uh, you know, the, the in many states you can't get any resources for serious mental illness of any type. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
I think it's I think it's all hands on deck. I think every available resource, every available modality, nothing should be off the table as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but I don't think I, I do think we have to be a little nuanced in what we do for each patient uh, that. I mean, it takes a long time to figure out what a given patient's actual situation is until they've been abstinent or in treatment for a, quite a period of time uh, and what their levels of capacity for treatment and what their ability to uh, sort of uh, engage in treatment or willingness to engage. It's, it's all over the place in terms of getting somebody well. You can get somebody stabilized really easily. It's, it's not that hard to get somebody sort of, uh, sort of, calm down and maybe in a place to live but but getting somebody fully treated and stabilized and to their best possible flourishing situation takes a long 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 time and as as you know dr kelly is pointing out multiple treatment episodes you know it's something you've got to keep at to, to me the and biggest also problem i have housing and uh is so key and i know you've you've mm -hmm. done a lot of work around homelessness yeah. and uh, that I've been following Charleston, West Virginia, which is right in the middle of uh, an HIV outbreak right now. And the state has just uh, basically outlawed syringe exchange at the time when it's the most concerning HIV outbreak in the nation. And the politics in rural America are, are, have really made it tough for folks trying to, to help these people. See, I, I have no objection to anything as long as trained properly trained people are engaged with the patients trying to get them motivated over to full full spectrum care i you can give them heroin as far as i'm concerned i have no problem with that as long as you're monitoring it and make sure they don't overdose give, give them heroin I, I don't i don't care it's nothing there's no judgment in anything it's everything uh, ha, it's all about fighting this incredible biology and this distortion the the real problem from my perspective is at least in california the laws prevent you from helping the patients if the patients have the slightest bit of resistance, you're not allowed to do anything. Just leave them alone. They're living their best life. Who are you to say? And that's why people are dying. They're dying at five a day here in Los Angeles uh, wow. because you're not allowed to go in and treat and hold. And, and you know, they're, it, if, they, if we treated dementia patients like this, you would, again, be built guilty of patient abuse. But because this condition has something called anisognosia associated with it, you must, you must defer to the anisognosia, which is a neurological, biological process. Some part of it is called denial, but it's more, it's more biological than that, where they literally can't see what's happening. They can't understand, or they can't fight the motivational disturbance. And that is privileged in the law right now and makes mm -hmm. it impossible to save lives. Makes it impossible. Some states, really uh, I think, right do have that uh, temporary de detention order type. Um, it it, uh, it in here, it's almost impossible. It's almost mm -hmm. impossible here. Almost impossible yeah. for substance use. Essentially zero. You have to. You have to say, I have no way to get food. I don't know where I'm going to live, and I'm going to kill myself. And here's my plan. Then you can hold mm -hmm. somebody for 24 to 48 hours, which accomplishes nothing. Which accomplishes mm -hmm. nothing. So, so other than that, you're, and there's no such thing in this state as greatly disabled. So you well, could be lying on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Hopefully the show will, yeah. will shine a light on um, the stigma that pervades not just families, but also the laws and, and our institutions, um, you know, that prevents, you know, 
still prevents 88% of the population from getting help. So, I mean, that's really my hope is that, um, that people realize how we got here as a nation with declining life expectancies for the first time since World War I. It's, it's just getting worse every year. We've got to really do something about this. The other thing uh, is that most addicts that are opiate addicts particularly have uh, severe childhood trauma underlying uh, that sort of what the, the motivation was to try to medicate their affect states in the beginning. And that never gets treated. <laughs> no one ever gets to the, to the childhood trauma, the sexual, physical abuse, neglect, all the stuff and abandonment and all the things that uh, opiate addicts typically have. I, you know, I, I, again, I only dealt with the sickest of the sick. And uh, if somebody got to me, there was a 100% probability of childhood trauma. And yeah. uh, we yeah. would get yeah. to it. Of course, we had... We had... Go ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had a piece in the Atlantic last May about a treatment innovator in rural Indiana who had figured out a way to, um, you know, basically get people coming out of jail with OUD into a really rigorous social supports, MAT, lots of counseling and lots of dealing with childhood trauma. And she's just discovered mm -hmm. that, I'm not just, but now they're starting a program for foster kids because so many, it's just exactly what you're saying, that we're now at the third generation of this. And, and until we mm -hmm. get our arms around uh, the problem of, you know, not enough foster parents, not enough counseling for these, these poor kids growing up uh, in these households, um, you're just going to see it, you know, snowball. Yeah, a, a large percentage. And, and being a foster child is traumatic. It's abandonment. That's a, abandonment at the core. And then whatever else goes wrong during the foster system, of course, can be traumatic as well. And then going to multiple foster homes, traumatic. These are all severe childhood traumas. Let's be very clear about that. And the the problem with getting the the folks out of prison, I I, I love programs like that, is there is an art form to determining when to treat a drug addict, particularly opiate addicts, for trauma. Oftentimes, when you treat it, the relapse risk goes up. So you have to be sure they're stable enough to handle it and sufficiently off all meds, everything, that they can actually do the trauma work, which is a wiring function of the brain, which requires people to be off almost everything. Uh, so there's a really tricky piece to this. And that requires a long time and a lot of structure. And then where do we get the resources for that? It's so hard. Yeah. Right. I, I do. Do are you well, guys have any with that woman? Does she have any luck with this? Is are the outcomes good? Are they? I'm sure oh she knows yeah, her, her outcomes were really good in the first year of studying. It was a small group because it was a rural area, but they had zero overdose deaths. Now they've had one since COVID because of the stresses and not being able to meet. Um, but they have drastically reduced their ODs, but they are throwing all kinds of services at these folks. And right. many of these That's people, right. I mean, California is one thing, but rural Indiana, um, I met a, I, I profiled a young man named Kenny who had, had been in and out of jail his whole, starting at age 15, and he had never been offered treatment until he was forced uh, in probation through this program to do it. And, you know, he's now a, a restaurant manager. He's doing great. Um, yeah. it, you know, he wants to go back and become a substance use counselor. So it, it's, it's very high touch, though, and as you say, a well, high cost. But but they figured out how to do it with using basically grants and Medicaid dollars, and it works. 
Right. Treatment works. Treatment works. That's the fundamental message here. It does work. I assume you're talking about assisted outpatient, AOT, assisted outpatient treatment that he got? IOP uh, is what they call it, intensive outpatient treatment. They do it but, right but, there but in the courthouse. But it's ma mandated. It's, it's mandated. Uh, in yeah. this particular and so situation, it is, yeah. It's part yeah, of their, it's like a drug court, but it's not as expensive right. and cumbersome as a drug court. And also, if right. they fail the drug test, they don't automatically go to jail if they are still trying really hard and they're convincing their counselor that, that they're taking it seriously. I mean, it wouldn't be an expensive program to replicate, which is why I want to write about it. It's Her name is Nikki King. The article was in the Atlantic May of 2020. So this is essentially what's called assisted outpatient treatment, which is available for serious mental illness as well. Some, some states do a lot with this and they, it works like crazy. So th this is the point that I'm certain, although that young man says he was never offered treatment, people are offered treatment. They, 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 don't, they don't take it. But when he is required to go, he will get better. He get, he get better in the assisted outpatient program. And we need to do more of that. But there seems to be a, no, there's almost an ideology against it. They'd rather see people die than be urged into treatment. Have you, have you encountered, at least out here in the West, that's the way it is. Is it, are you seeing yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, we still have, most of our drug courts don't allow uh, medication-assisted treatment. Um, so then they're in that bad spot of being opioid naive. And when they use, that's when they're more prone to die. Um, we have a lot of, you know, a lot of stigma still getting in the way of getting the treatment that science says, you know, reduces overdose death by 60 to 80%. So, um, we have a really strong message about medication-assisted treatment in episodes seven and eight of our Hulu show. You see um, people being stigmatized for being, quote, not clean in meetings, and you see them start to get better when they're getting intensive counseling paired with the social supports and the MAT. And um, we're not just putting a smiley face on it. People can get better, but we're just not offering it at the scale to match the scale of the epidemic yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, not even close. I, I would argue that the, the ambivalence about uh, medication-assisted treatment is not a stigma so much as a concern uh, because we all, when you work in the field, you see people that abuse Suboxone, you, people, you see people that die and traffic Suboxone, that use other substances while they're on Suboxone. So there's, there's just concern that either the person isn't serious. Uh, I, I still think it should be used, even a non-serious person, don't get me wrong. But in the community where, where abstinence is valued and returning to a flourishing life is the goal, there is concern uh, about people that are taking half measures. I, I, what I try to get them to understand is, you know, like you say, you meet people where you are and you get them further, right. you move them along, you get them further in Yeah, it. and in an era um, of fentanyl, you know, you hate to let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, in an era of fentanyl, it, it's just, it's so, so dangerous. It's dangerous. So it's, it's I, dangerous. I mean, I have a good friend who's a judge and he says, Beth, I'm not gonna let my patients or my my probationers be on uh, Suboxone because they'll just, um, they'll sell it in order to buy meth. And- um, They do, or they buy do a lot heroin. of that. A lot of that happens. They, Yep. Some do, do but many people don't. Yep. And too much policy gets made around the people that aren't using it correctly instead of the people for whom it's saving their lives. Uh, yeah, Diana's saying Suboxone is harder to come off than a full agonist meeting heroin. 
Yeah, suboxone is hard to get up, but if you you can you know if you can get down around five milligrams, and a lot of people can get down to two, and you're in pretty good shape at that point. In fact, at two milligrams or even four milligrams, you can really kind of start to participate in treatment. The problem is back to my peers; they don't understand how to treat addiction, and so they leave them on thirty-two milligrams, and they're they're high when they're at thirty-two milligrams, and that might be better than dying on fentanyl. I understand, but Look, there are, there are other outcomes, there, there are other endpoints other than death that we're trying to achieve, that we're trying to avoid. In other words, we're trying to achieve returning to work, returning to independence, returning to autonomy, returning to a flourishing life. And people cannot do that when they're on high doses of, of opioids. They just don't. Um, but they can go from high, high doses to low doses. They can certainly do that uh, if they're in the right hands and the right, and the yeah. right structure and the right circumstances. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I wish more yeah, doctors yeah, right. were willing to become um, educated about it. You know, so many people, they don't want those people in their waiting room. Well, guess what? They're in your waiting room yeah. already. Oh, they already are. And, yeah. um, but but I, they also. I, when, I, when I give a talk to doctors, I will say, you know, I know maybe all didn't overprescribe, but many of your peers did. And uh, mm -hmm. and I know you were lied to by the reps, but you did help us indirectly or not get it, get, get us into this mess. You need to help us get out. And um, so, so yeah, starting oh, to see sure. like emergency departments, you know, doing buprenorphine and doing the funneling with the peer supports yeah. and into the yeah. outpatient. And, and and then AOT, if we can get the courts to mandate treatment, it, it saves lives, absolutely. AOT is a big assisted outpatient treatment is the euphemism for this. And uh, they, they need to have large scale AOT. There's no doubt about that for both substance use disorder and serious mental illness of other types. Um, uh, what was something I was thinking about here with the, oh, lost my train of thought. Um, Susan, are you, is this all familiar territory to you? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Oh, Anthony Brown says, this is why I'm going to become a nurse practitioner. Yeah. So this is what I was going to say. And Anthony Brown as a nurse is recovering. He's a recovering friend and he, he gets this disease very, very well because he himself had it, um, which is that the physicians and, and primary care providers that don't have lots of experience with addiction or are not recovering themselves, don't understand how to create the structure for using Suboxone even. In other words, many of these folks only test for opioids as a, a, and, and count pills, as opposed to screening for multiple other substances, which people often use alongside of the Suboxone and how they get into serious trouble. But they don't do that. It's hard work to confront drug addicts. It's really hard. And you really, you actually can't do it one-on-one. -on -one. You have to have a team because it's too powerful. It, it, I tell people, mm -hmm. Beth, that the, you ever see the Little Shop of Horror, the musical, the, the movie? The, the plant in the Little Shop of Horror, the Audrey II, is a perfect model for a drug addiction. If you go in the room alone, you go in the plant. That's it. The plant takes you in. Yeah. You cannot. Yeah. I can't do it. I know a lot about it. I always brought a nurse in with me because some somehow I would get engaged with the disease in ways that I couldn't see. But a nurse would kick my chair when it would happen to pull me out mm -hmm. of the plant. And, a lot of uh, folks you, are not as easy. They'll have people in recovery right. on their teams and we'll, we'll be like, hey, doc, the guy's playing you. You know, they they can tell. Right. And that person right. at the front desk is so important because so many people going to the hospital for abscess treatment or whatever have been so stigmatized that it's really important that, uh, 
you know, just the people at the front desk, the ambulance drivers, the EMTs, that they all get stigma training, in my opinion, because um, but but the, but the recovering alone. community, the, the oh yeah, the recovering community that I I don't you you cannot run a program without a lot of recovering people in the room because. As a normie, you you don't you don't think the way a drug addict thinks. You, your brain doesn't do that, and their brains do it automatically. They see it. I, I would go in the room and you know come out and talk to some of my recovering you know uh, counselors and go, oh my god, I was she was so into it. She this she was uh, talking about her mom and the trauma, and she was connecting and making a commitment to ongoing care. And my my uh, my uh, uh, counselor looks at me and goes, yeah yeah, she wants drugs. I go, no no no, she's she's engaged. Yeah, she sees that you have a prescription pad. She wants you to register some drugs. She, she'll be out. She'll tell you. You'll, you'll, you watch. You watch. She'll be here. She'll be at the window in a second. Uh, she wants drugs. That, that's all bullshit. And, and you can't tell if you're not a drug addict. And these are people in treatment, motivated. The disease always has lying, manipulating, and distorting and obfuscating are symptoms of the illness. And those symptoms don't go away for a long, long time, like the order of years. So to blame addicts and alcoholics for being manipulative, obfuscating, or lying is to blame them for having their condition. It's almost comical. It's Those are symptoms of the disease. And your job is to see through all that and try to figure out what's really going on and not even not listen to some of the nonsense that, that they uh, always engage in. So that's uh, sure kind of back to your point about the... But uh, I really admire um, like the fellow that was just on who's going to become a nurse practitioner. I mean, it's really mm -hmm. th the people the people doing this work are, are heroes. They're they're angels on the earth. And, um, well, and I've don't, seen don't, a lot. Don't do too much. I mean, well, I did it for 25 years with a, with a big group and uh, we, we love doing it and we love uh, being a team. Anthony, why don't you go over to clubhouse and you can get on the i'll probably up on the on the podium here put your hand up i'll look for you and you can talk about your experience as a recovering person say and hi. Uh, what your plan is what's that susan say hi say hi i mean by raising his hand let's see if i can get him over here uh, is he is he on clubhouse yeah okay come on over buddy and uh let's see if he has any input in all this because he uh so anthony was you know years and years and years on the streets using and dealing and uh, he has these great stories about addictive thinking, how he was sitting in prison going, what is wrong with me? What's wrong? I know. I got to put the drugs in my socks. That's the problem. Uh, and or he, or he, he decided to change corners. I know the problem is I'm on the wrong corner. Uh, I'm on the right to, to dealing with my drugs. Anthony, are you going to come or no? Uh, let's see if I can get him over here. Does it take a long time to get onto the, uh, the page? All right, Beth, one second. This is a, yeah, I know you got to go in just a second here. I'm going to let you go in mere moments. Uh, if I can get Anthony out of here, I think it'd be an interesting. Susan, you're on there. Are you going to call him? Uh, all right, in the meantime, let me just quickly look at some of the um, uh, people's. Yeah, methadone. I have grave concern about methadone. Do you have any feeling about that? Methadone yeah. works really good for people who need that daily check-in. You know, they have to go every day. Mm -hmm. And um, Michael Keaton, the Michael Keaton doctor character uh, uh, has a great methadone storyline. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's good. I think there's a lot of restrictions. We saw during COVID that some of the restrictions were loosened and I think we should continue to, to loosen them. Yeah, methadone can, again, it depends what you're in, what you're looking for. If it's, if it's just survival, you can 
survive on methadone, but it's a, it's kind of a prison methadone. It's almost impossible to get off that drug. I, I've almost never seen anybody get off it. Uh, and if you can get down on a low, low, low dose, uh, okay, but it's extremely difficult to do that. The withdrawal from opiates from methadone can last up to six months, and it's it's nasty. It is really rough. Suboxone has been such, and now I'll tell you what you can do is you can switch from methadone over to Suboxone. And although Suboxone is an intense, it's more intense the withdrawal than heroin, it, it is only, you know, 10 days and it's, and it's not. And you, and you can do it really slow taper. Yeah. Yeah. But even when you, if there's something about Suboxone, when you go even from a low dose to zero, there's always a pretty nasty six to 10 days. Uh, it just is mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, but getting going. down is much, much easier, much easier. Um, well, do you have any you know, you uh, final on? question I, about the show? Yeah, Dr. Anthony's not responding. Yeah, I so don't. I, I can't get Anthony in here. I don't. I thought he might have something interesting to say about his work as a nurse practitioner. Um, tell, give us, give for, give us a brief rundown of what people are going to see on the show so they are motivated to go watch. And then the new book. Yeah. The so book the book. show tells the story of the introduction of OxyContin. Um, and it, it it's it's it goes from the boardrooms of Purdue to you see sales reps uh, telling these these falsehoods about the, the alleged safety of the drug, and then you see the doctors prescribing it, and you see this whole community change in Appalachia, and. Um, you know, there, there. We do address treatment at the end, and all the barriers to treatment, and the stigma that folks face. And um, you know, somebody who read my book came up to me and said, um, "Thank you for for writing this book." Before I read it, I didn't understand I was part of a bigger story. I thought I was just a really bad person. And I think that's what the show Ooh. does. It it shows oh, you how nice. this happened, and uh, in almost like in real time over fifteen years. Great. It, it is dope sick. And the new book is Raising Lazarus. Is Raising Lazarus up yet, out yet or coming soon? Uh, no, it'll come out next August. So I really just turned in the, okay. the first pass at it. Yeah. We will look for that. And uh, thank you for coming on, Beth. And thank you for the book. They, they just that, that what you said about somebody understanding they have an illness and it's not them as a person being bad or problematic or shameful. Yeah. It's really very powerful and hopefully does a lot more of that. Also, didn't you say you yeah. had, you wrote this book before the pandemic and then you were taking some heat for what you wrote in the book as well. Did we talk about that? Oh, Didn't we were talking earlier yeah. just about chronic pain patients feel feel like mm -hmm. the book and as well as the show and all this emphasis on overprescribing uh, has hurt them. And I know some data came out uh, not long after I turned the book in showing that some people who are being forced tapered, uh, who are on yeah. steady doses of opioids, have um yep. you know they've gone to the illicit market and gotten fentanyl and died or committed suicide yep. and so people are being hurt by um doctors who don't really see the issue with nuance and maybe are are over correcting because of the cdc guidelines so i mean i have a lot of heart for those folks too and i just wish um you know we trained uh, our healthcare providers better on both addiction right. and which can be so that's right. entwined. That's right. If you understood addiction, you wouldn't understand more what you're dealing with. You wouldn't, again, just dismiss people because they had pain. But I will tell you, the one thing that I'm fighting, about I'm fighting, Suboxone is really good for chronic pain. Uh, buprenorphine, really good. Helping. I'm seeing so much great outcome with that. There needs to be a much greater uh, 
pickup by the pain community for the use of buprenorphine. It's it's sort of exceptional. Anthony it, made it. Yeah, I heard that as well. Made it well. Oh, Beth's got to go, though. The dogs need to come in. And, and... All right, Beth's got to go. I'll bring Anthony <laughs> up anyway for comments. So thank, thank you, you, Beth. Dr. Appreciate the website. <laughs> yeah, take care. You bet. Beth Bite is at Paper Girl Macy. At Paper Girl Macy, you can follow her there, author of Dope Sick. And thank you so much. I'll take a little break. And when I get back, we're going to friend Anthony Brown up here. Here with my daughter, Paulina, to share an exciting new project. Over the years, we've talked to a ton of young people about what they really want to know about relationships. It's difficult to know who you are and what you want, especially mm. as a teenager. And not everyone has access to an expert in their house like I did. Of course, it wasn't like I was always that receptive to that advice. Right, no kidding. But now we have written the book on consent. It is called It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward, and it explores relationships, romantic relationships, and sex. It's a great guide for teens, parents, and educators to go beyond the talk and have honest and meaningful conversations. It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward will be on sale September 21st. You can order your book anywhere books are sold. Mm -hmm. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, and of course, your independent local bookstore. Links are available on drdrew.com. So pre-ordering the book will help people, well, raise awareness, obviously, and it'll get that conversation going early so more people can can notice this and spread the word of positivity about healthy relationships. So if you can, we would love your support by pre-ordering now. Totally. And as we said before, this is a book that both teenagers and their parents should read. Read the book, have the conversation. It doesn't have to be awkward. On sale, September 21st. All right, we're back. Let's get my friend uh, Anthony Brown up here. Anthony. Has an interesting story himself, and um, there you are, Nurse Anthony. How are you, my friend? I'm good. How are you, Doctor Drew? Good. Did you hear that conversation just had with uh, Beth? Oh my God, I loved it. Good. So, I here's one thing I wanted to ask: is I always bristle when people talk about addicts feeling stigmatized. Did you feel stigmatized when you were in your illness? When I was in my illness, no, I didn't feel anything. No, nobody. I've never met an addict that feels stigmatized ever. What were you interested in when you were in your disease? Getting high. Right. And that's the only thing I find of my patients. They are interested in getting high, and I'm I'm either a source of drugs or I am not. And if I'm a source of drugs, I can be manipulated. Uh, what about the idea that uh, drug addicts are motivated for care? I, I've never seen one motivated for care until the consequences get so too great. Well, we, we have moments of clarity. We want care, but it lasts briefly. Right, 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 right. You know, and... Yeah. Um, that's that's when, you know, you just have to have, like, when I finally gave up, I wanted care, and I just happened to be in the back of a police car and ran out of drugs. Right. And it, so, yeah, care was a good idea. Right. right. And, and if the right person hadn't come along at that moment, you would have gone back into your usual patterns, right? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. there, there, there is no deterring. Because, I mean, once you get that physical addiction, you have to have it. That's right. just the way it is. Right. And it, it doesn't matter. And, and as you explained, when we were talking to Jason Waller last week that you were the kind of person that would steal your friend's wallet and then help him look for it. Yes. Even if it's only us two in the same room. Right. <laughs> so good. Addiction is so funny. This is the part you got to appreciate about it. Um, so uh, back to, uh, you know, medically assisted treatment and you know, all these half measures and things. We, we have to do these things because people are so far gone. How do you think about that? I, I think it's I'm 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 on both sides of the fence. Yeah. Um because I'm I got sober back when they just throw you in jail and you detox and that's it. Yeah. But now since everybody wants to keep their jobs and stuff, yeah, that's fine. You know, uh, Matt works, but you have to have therapy to go listen. Right. That's exactly right. 
And you have to be structured. You have to make sure you're not using other drugs or selling it. It, it has to be highly, highly monitored. You don't just Absolutely. you don't just give persons opioids and go, hey, go here, take these opioids. They're better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll mail them to your house. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny to you, but believe me, there are plenty of physicians out there doing stuff like that. It's it's too much. It's too much. Yeah, you have to understand the addiction. You have to understand all the, and you can't deal with it alone. You have to. So when you think about getting involved in the treatment of uh, addiction, what, what what do you imagine you'll be involved with? Um, definitely. Uh, once I once I get to the nurse practitioner part, um, being able to, I would like to go back to the old school of detoxing opiates. Mm. You know, um, with the Robaxin and yeah. all of that stuff instead yeah. of you know, doing a Suboxone route. I mean, that's great, but people are getting addicted to that too. Right. And so, the, so you ha here's the, here's the really challenging thing you're bringing up here. You have to select the proper treatment. That's, that's Anthony's book, Park Bench to Park Avenue. You have to select the right treatment for the right patient, right? You have to be sure this patient has the ability to stay in a structured system going forward so they don't overdose and die when they're still opioid naive. And you know, if you heard uh, Beth saying that, she was, you know, really give. There's a world out there that says there's no such thing as abstinence from opiates because it's too dangerous. Well, I'm here to tell you, I I did it. I treated a, probably five thousand people that successfully remained off opioids, and they did not die of an overdose, even when they relapsed. If they did, you can treat it. You just have to select the right patients, and there's got to be the right resources available for ongoing care. And that's hard. And as the other, and if you're going to run an abstinence-based program, and Anthony, this is your point about the clonidine, Robaxin, Motrin, all that stuff. And by the way, um, used to use Geodon. We used to use, uh, oh man, a lot of uh, injectable Toradol and stuff, and and even a lot of Mirapex because a lot of the restless leg, the pain stuff, uh, when you're coming off opiates, that's actually restless leg syndrome, and it responds to Mirapex. Um, having said all that, you you can make opioid withdrawal pretty tolerable in about three days. I, I never once in the three decades I was working in the units never said, how are we going to get these opiate addicts off opiates? I can't get anybody off heroin. No, I never had any problem getting people off heroin in three to five days. Never. We had no problem doing it. We knew how to do it. It was uncomfortable, but we got them through it. No big deal. And the problem I had was I couldn't run my unit for the abstinence-based patients if I was bringing an opiate into the nursing station. You know what I mean, Anthony? Yeah, absolutely, because that's what, I mean, word gets around. We we, we addicts talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And if we know that there's some goodies on the unit, mm -hmm. then, then I'm going to have some symptoms. Yeah. And so I, I couldn't, I could not even allow a benzodiazepine or an opioid of any type into the nursing station. Because I knew, I knew if they even came on board, the unit would start vibrating. I'd be actually, I certainly been able to do treatment. I can't even run the unit. They start, it just starts flying apart as everyone gets agitated. And, you know, they start fighting with each other because so-and-so got something and somebody didn't get something. Oh my God. It, it just goes all over the place. Didn't yeah, you say that was the Suboxone too? That's what I'm, Suboxone is the opiate I, I used to not be able to bring on the unit. So what I would say was, look, if you want to get Suboxone, you want to get on a replacement therapy, you have to go to a different unit because I can't run an abstinence-based unit with any benzodiazepine, any Suboxone on the unit, which is kind of a, a weird challenge. I mean, it's like we need two different units. We need one for medical-assisted treatment and one for abstinence-based therapy. And then how do you how do you determine who the right patients are for the right treatment? That's a really serious uh, art form. Yeah, that that is difficult because 
word spreads. I mean, reg- regardless of what anybody says, we mm-hmm. we talk. We're human beings. We, we talk and we develop a sense. We know where the drugs are. We can tell where it is, and we can tell when we're about to get it because we will we will we will sit back and examine you. Yep, and right. we will figure out what does it take to get Doctor Drew to give me something. Yep, that's why I have to have recovering people around me all the time because they they pick up when that's happening, and and, and I don't because I'm in it with you. That's the little shop of horrors thing. Tell, if you don't mind, share the story of when we were out on the streets in uh, downtown Los Angeles and you showed me where the drugs were coming from and I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, you can, you, you can spot it. I mean, you, you look over and there's there's a group of people there. You got to look out there and, you know, you start seeing a stream of people waiting in line. It's like, okay, we know what's going on there, you know, and everybody looks all happy and fidgety and it's like, okay, that's the spot, you know, then it's like, hey, there it is right there. You know, and but you had you had multiple roles picked out for all the people, and I I didn't even see the line and the fidgetiness. That was that was not exactly obvious to me. But but you also picked out people with specific jobs as it as it pertained to how the drugs were being sort of distributed, right? Yeah, yeah. You can you can see the lookout. You can see the enforcer, the guy that was like leaning against the fence, looking at everybody with his arms crossed. You can see the connect. You can even see her pulling out her bosom. I mean, it's all there. I, I thought you said it was in the vagina in this one woman. Yeah, believe me, it was coming out of places. <laughs> oh. So Susan, Anthony comes up to me and goes, uh, you, see the, you see that guy over there? He's the lookout. And you see this guy over here? He's the, he's the muscle. And that lady over there in the corner, she's got a bunch of meth in her vagina. She's the purse. And she's the... <laughs> 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 you may have developed a new nomenclature for the streets. I like that. She's the purse. Uh, yes, she was. Yes, she was. Ladies and gentlemen, she'll be here all night. My, my wife, Susan Pinsky. Uh, but uh, that was that that was uh, surprising to me how ignorant I was. You know, I thought I was usually kind of aware of what people were up to. But uh, that that was very covert from my perspective, even as somebody who kind of understands what's going on out there. So, yeah, it's 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 I mean, when you when you're around it for so long, yeah, it's like, you know, you're at home pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the part that, uh, again, you have to understand if you're going to deal with this illness because that's what comes at you. And it comes at you for a long time, even when people are genuinely engaged in treatment. How how long, because you had a major relapse along the way after you were actively involved in treatment. During that time, as you sort of ramped up to your relapse, were you still having trouble with the truth? Um, the truth was no problem. I just got bored because... Mm living this new lifestyle, it was boring. I was, I was used to excitement and, you know, people picking at themselves and staying up and, you know, all that stuff. And then I get the sobriety and everybody's like going to sleep and <laughs> it's like, what, you know, what's this all about? You know? <laughs> what's this, what's this eight hours of sleep business? Sleep in yeah. bed. What's that all about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, when are you done with your training? When are you going to be fully uh, an NP? I have, Oh Jesus! <laughs> Twenty more months. All right, that that'll go fast. You'll be shocked. Is some of that clinical? Uh, yeah, I'm going to do a whole year in clinical. And and how do you? Is it hospital based or outpatient? How do you do that? Um, it depends because I'm doing NPs. I have to go across the entire um, life spectrum from mm-hmm. birth to death. Good. So I'm going to be all over the place. You're going to probably hear me crying, Doctor Drew. This is tough. Well, it, yeah. it is tough. But if you have questions, I'm all I'm all in. I got pretty good instincts on these things. I'm doing it a long time. So let me know what you see. All right. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, buddy. We'll talk soon. Okay. All right, Anthony Brown. Everybody. 
now, uh, I was, let's see what I want to talk about now. There's a few other things. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I need to read to you a uh, breaking news. Okay. Uh, it makes the breaking news is both a source of relief uh, and anger for me. Uh-oh. Uh, I will. Get the. Dr. Drew strikes back ready, Caleb. Oh, and Susan wants my Attitude score. Uh, oof. Don't worry about it. It's going to take we'll me a second. We'll do it tomorrow. All right. Um, so Lisa Stroman sent me an article, uh, and I'm going to read you the opening uh, paragraph, and, and it was a source of great inspiration and anger, anger for me. <laughs> oh, God. So here it is. This is... Uh, the a American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Remember I've been saying, where is the American Academy of Psychiatry? Where is American, uh, the, the uh, APA, the American Psychiatric Association? Where are these people? What have they been doing as it pertains to what's happening to 15 to 18-year-olds in this country with the lockdowns and the lack of schooling and the homelessness? Now, this is not about the homelessness, but I have hope that maybe this will be the next thing to come. But this pertains, this is from the Child and Adolescent Group in specific. So American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the Children's Hospital Association have declared a national emergency in children's mental health, citing the toll of the pandemic, the lack of being at school. Here's the uh, quote, young people have endured so much for the pandemic. Attention is often placed on physical health consequences. We cannot overlook the escalating mental health crisis facing young people. There it is. Thank you. Strikes Thank back. you. We're fine, strikes back. Where have you been? <laughs> Where have you been? We've been talking about this for nearly a year. And it's too little to, well, it's, uh, it's never too little too late. It's just uh, just shocking to me that it's taken until now for these organizations to step up and take a position. We, it, most of the, the, the fear of the pandemic, the panic porn around the pandemic, the overreach of the, the unions closing the schools, the overreach of the lockdown scaring the shit out of people, this is how we have damaged young people. And then kids falling behind at school. Fourth grade like reading proficiency is 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 at an all time low. Fourth grade reading efficiency deficiency, uh, efficiency rather, the ability to read at a fourth grade level. You're ten years old and you can't read at a fourth grade level. That's common now. Right. Well done, everybody. Well done, it's government. Going to be a horrible generation. This is what I up. was. This is what I was screaming about from the beginning and why I, I just saw this coming and why I was saying you shouldn't listen to the press because the panic can only hurt things. It can yeah. only make things worse. Think about how different if we if we had said, this is going to be bad, everybody. Get ready. We're going to get through this together. I want everyone to listen to the CDC and Dr. Fauci. Do not listen to CNN. Do not listen to Fox News. We'll get this. It may take some time. We're going to have Project uh, uh, Warp Speed underway. We are incredibly uh, improvisational in our healthcare system in the United States, and we'll figure out a way to get enough beds, which we've managed to do. If we had taken that position at the beginning and said, we're going to get this, stay positive, let's go, let's stay open as much as we can, let's take the best possible route, but you know, protect ourselves from one another, um, my God, would this have been a different experience? And kept kids in school like most countries did. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. So anyway. Um, Feel better? No, I, I feel better that these organizations are you gotta coming forward. got to get forward. this information out there. Yeah. I was thinking about when Douglas broke his leg yeah. when he was in high school. Yeah. And he was, he he really broke his leg. And he was out for a couple of weeks because he had to take painkillers and mm -hmm. stuff. And he fell behind mm -hmm. just two weeks mm -hmm. behind yeah. in, a, in his private school. And, you know, a lot of the kids are still in private school, but the 
but just the anxiety that he went through trying to catch up. Yeah. Like, remember, you had Terrible. to like come home at oh night and work on his till his vocabulary. We lessons would be doing and, lessons till three in the morning and stuff. It was terrible. Yeah, because he was he wanted to get into college and he, knew he was going to fall behind. That's just I two know. weeks. Imagine a whole year. What's the plan, everybody? What was the plan when you when you did this? I I remember I was I was doing a nightly show on a local newscast here in Los Angeles, Fox Eleven, which is you know where the Simpsons are played and that kind of stuff. Not not Fox News, Fox Eleven, and uh, and uh, you know a couple weeks into it, somebody from the school board came in and said we're closing the schools. And I said what? Why? Well, who who made this decision? Who told you to do that? Is there some infectious disease expert that schools have to be closed indefinitely? What what what? Where did this come from? Well, of course, it came from the high school project in Albuquerque in 1991, the Dr. Green's daughter. Now, what's interesting to me is he is still saying that that was the right move, uh, even though it was never designed to be a nationwide lockdown. I know it was in local Florida, lockdowns. they weren't doing that. Right. And Florida and California, we've ended up in the same place. It's not like we've gone to so two weird. different pandemics. We've had different courses to the pandemic. We've ended in the same place. And did we, did I, I'll be curious to see if the mental health is of children is worse in California than in Florida. That will be an important measure. Let's not hide that. The other thing, somebody yesterday, it will be. somebody yesterday was saying on Twitter, they said, you know, we, we, I get very angry when I hear about the labor force being reduced um, and there not being enough available workers. Cause of course we had 700,000 deaths. And I said, we had 580,000 above the age of 65 <laughs> and something like 450,000 above the age of 75. So we only lost about 200,000 people of working age, maybe, maybe 150,000 really. Um, I don't think that really impacted the workforce measurably. Not to say that it's not a tragedy, but that we have hid the age data. The, major, the, the, the highest percentage represented of deaths from COVID is 85 plus. Again, we were talking about this at the beginning of the pandemic. Look at the data, look at realistically, and think about how different it would have been if we'd said, mm, let's take this risk population, let's really protect that group, and let's keep everybody else's life going as much as possible. Would have been, we would have avoided the mental health consequences that I don't know how we get out of or how long we'll be dealing with. I, I don't even know. It's, it's really... Um, Kate Dunalevy. Dunleavy mm -hmm. said her fifth grade son had a student from California join his class. His parents were fed up and moved to Texas. Interesting. The new students is far behind. He missed more than a year. It's so sad. It's so sad. I mean, you would have to move if it, you know, I would have. I don't think, I mean, I don't even know if our kids' schools stayed in session, but um, if I had to train my kids, I, they'd just be illiterate like me. <laughs> well, it would be. Well, it would. It wouldn't just be the. It'd be hard. Uh, <laughs> probably what you would have done is hired tutors. I would have had to like move them into the house. Yeah, and, and think how many people can afford to hire tutors. Triplets. Nobody can do that. It would yeah, have it would been have been ridiculous. as, as about, expensive as private school. Privilege. Probably. Yeah, talk about privilege. No, but I, there's and, no and way disparities. It would have been. They ridiculous. would have gotten the education that they got, and they would be no, where they course. are today. And and I'm trying to think of what college. You know what colleges are going to be like. You know, who's going to get into colleges? It's going to be people from other countries. <laughs> We're not going to have, our kids are not going to be able to to survive. Margaret Campbell on the restream is asking, what about long COVID? Uh, people with long COVID typically stay in work. They don't, they don't drop out of the workforce. They just are miserable. 
Um, but I don't. I have lots of people I know with long COVID. None of them have stayed out of the workforce. Um, it, not that it doesn't happen. I'm sure it does, but it's not typically the case. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Well, I, I wonder gonna, what they're going to call this generation too. Generation like lost. A lost gen- yeah, lost generation. That's exactly generation what, that's, screwed. Yeah, that's exactly what the. I mean, I, look. Yeah, I'm it, not. I'm laughing out of out like. Of what, anxiety. It, here's what typically happens when there are uh, significant disparities like this, which is or, or significant stressors like this. Let's say, is usually what happens is. Some kids really rise above it and develop people that are very resilient, develop skill sets and actually sort of are better because of the stressor. Most people fall away or or suffer as a result. We'll have a lot. That's the sad reality. We'll have a lot more people interested in the tech though, because they got to, you know, be on a computer all day. Well, I was thinking today, I told Adam this, that, that one of the biggest barriers to mental health treatment, (laughs) I'm convinced is the waiting room. The psychologist waiting room. Nobody likes sitting in that waiting room, waiting for somebody else to walk out while they walk in. Nobody likes the idea of maybe there are other offices in the area you have to walk into the psychologist's office. That that is the to me that's the barrier to entry for for psychological services. And with things like BetterHelp and there's a bunch of them now, you can get online therapeutic services. I think that will help the access to. So I'm, I'm I would say that's one of the positive benefits of all that's happened here. Miss Kaylee wants us to talk about dope sick. <laughs> as far as what? Stop talking about this. Let's, can we talk about dope sick? What does she want to talk about? I don't know. It's just a conversation. That it's like, I don't know. Miss Kaylee, what do you want to ask about dope sick? Go ahead. Uh, do, you, do you want to call in? Are Is you she on, on the, Clubhouse? Yeah, are you on a Clubhouse? Let me see if you're over here. Uh, give me a second. I don't see you. Come on over to uh, Clubhouse if you want to talk about that. Uh, just got to raise your hand. I think hand. she just wanted us to stop talking about kids. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I'm going to, I'm thinking about really uh, wrapping sad. up. The homeless are in the bike lanes. <laughs> yeah, I know. And by the way, some homeless are, people are getting hit. They're just wandering across the street, which is another source of disaster. Uh, all right, Miss Kaylee, is that it? Is that your, just your statement for us to get off the, <laughs> get off the, the uh, topic well, of COVID? I don't know. Miss Kaylee, here we go. I want to know, know what you thought, thought of the show. show. Okay, Miss Kaylee, what's thought of the show? Um, there's a lot of stuff I bristle at, you know, I bristle at people that, uh, start talking about, um, uh, stigma families feel stigmatized. Drug addicts never feel stigmatized when they're using. And Anthony pointed that out. Of course he didn't. I've never met a drug addict that felt stigmatized. Uh, also the idea that drug oh, addicts, Ms. Kaylee's on clubhouse. Yeah. The idea that drug addicts want treatment. There you are. Um, is, uh, is of course they do in moments of clarity, but they go right back to their using. Uh, oh, Miss, she's gone. <laughs> no, I brought Kaylee up. Oh, there she is. Hi, Kaylee. Hello. Hey there. So, what are your thoughts? Well, I just finished watching the series, mm. and I just loved the background information. And I work in outpatient um, substance use disorder, mm-hmm. and to see the history and to see the root of this Mm -hmm. was actually very helpful for me because I realized that people just didn't start dying of fentanyl overnight. Oh no. It, it started with my profession. It it absolutely started there. hundred percent. Right. Have you read dreamland yet? No, please read the book dreamland by Sam Cononius. It it, it is the, is the most accurate discussion of that history par none. And you really get to understand how this happened. It's called Dreamland. 
I think I heard a podcast. You were talking to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. About okay. the book. Yep. Okay. Yeah, yep. definitely. Um, it's just, you know, I have a, I have a, a patient that is in recovery for fentanyl. She's getting methadone every morning. Mm-hmm. And every time I turn on my Zoom and she's in my group, mm-hmm. I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm. Just that she shows up because I know her chances are so low of even living. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's so good that this series was created and that people can start to understand what they're seeing all around them, but mm-hmm. they don't know what happened. Good. That's good. That is a great that is a great observation and a, and a, a huge service of this series. If people take away the same thing you're taking away, uh, be very yeah, careful like with why the methadone. Are encampments. You know what's happening. Why well, can't you get your pain pills? You know all of this. The encampments are really meth encampments. That's a different story. Uh, right. That's another book right. you should read by Sam Quinone. It's called The Least of Us, which really tells right. you the story of how meth took over, and the right. encampments are meth meth right. gangs. You know that that's clearly what that is now. What was it like for you as a doctor when you were going through that? It must have been traumatic. Oh, it's terrible. It's why I, it's one of the reasons I got out of the treatment field. As I, as oh, I said, really? I was, I saw it was happening. Uh, my peers were killing my patients on a regular basis. I was taking, I spent most of my time taking patients in pain off opiates. They would all come in with a complaint of their pain being 15 or 20 on a scale of 10. Always say 15 or 20. I'd say out of 10, how many? 15. They'd always say that. Take Do no <laughs> other treatment other than take them off opiates. They would stop talking about their pain unless prompted, and they would always go down to a scale of around four or five out of 10, just taking them off the opiates. They, they engaged in treatment. They did well. Unfortunately, they would go back to see their doctors. The doctors would say, why do you let those people try to brainwash you? You're going to need to be on this medicine the rest oh. of your life. Then I was being scrutinized by the Joint Commission of Hospital Accreditation, the Department of Mental Health, the Board of Medical Quality Assurance, because I was a dinosaur. I was interested in human suffering. Didn't I understand that pain was the fifth vital sign, that I was allowing my patients in heroin withdrawal to be uncomfortable, God forbid. Uh, It was an unbelievable time, and I could see exactly what was happening, and I knew how pathetic it was, and I was being assailed by my pain management peers, particularly, were the ones killing my patients. Uh, and they were saying that they were saying that you couldn't get addicted to, they literally say out loud, if you had pain, you couldn't get addicted because the pain soaked up the high of the pain. That was literally their words. Hmm. And uh, that they would then question where their addiction existed at all. And they would say at most, it's something called pseudo addiction, which is just some weird hand-waving idea that they They developed. just made all this up. They made it all up. And they and if you set a patient out of an emergency room with less than 90 pills for Oxycontin or at least Vicodin, you were guilty, not just wow. of malpractice, but you were guilty of patient abuse for which you could go to jail. So if you didn't adequately treat pain, you remember pain is the fifth vital sign? Right. That's in the show. I never heard that before. Oh my God. You they didn't don't tell me the pulse or the patient's breathing. What's their pain scale? Before you do anything else, that's what all the re- that's what all the review agencies were on us about constantly. It was horrific and insane, and I knew it, and I was fighting it for a decade and a half. And finally, finally, something was done about it. So it was not just the drug company. The drug company was duplicitous in the whole thing. They were certainly not a, a help, but it was it was a discipline. Literally, board the board testing. For these these subsets of of uh, 
medical specialties would include mandating these this kind of pain management for people with addiction. And they uh, and the, the, do they talk about the the Porter and Jick letter and all that stuff in the series? How uh, one letter What's to the called? it's called the Porter and Jick letter. It was one letter written to the New England Journal of Medicine that that was used as a defense for all of this prescribing. It was ridiculous. It, it, they talked it, about the label that the the time release was the way the FDA got around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, they talk about that. Yeah, well, just all the different kinds of drugs that were available. It's just it just got more and more and more addictive. That's all. I mean, we're you know the methods out there is worse. I owe you an apology. What's that? I think a lot of people owe you an apology. Oh, I'm, believe me, that's true. I don't I don't care. I was fighting for the people's <laughs> lives, and and and, and, and the <laughs> fact that it was going unchecked was like it was unbelievable to me. It was really just you you got to. It was so obvious what was happening. Yeah, this is the overdose uh, deaths data involving opioids. And it was it before, and then what they did, uh, Kaylee, is they then brought the patient, they cut the patients off. Once they started realizing they were in trouble oh, with no. these overdose deaths, they cut the patients off rather than bringing them into the office and going, look, you didn't intend this, I didn't intend this. We have a new problem. We have caused a second problem. You have they pain. They do touch on that in the show. They show what happened when the girl just stopped. The oxy. Well, she, do you, do you, what do you think? You're a drug addict. Where are you going? Right. Going to the street. Well, course. before she was even an addict, she was just using it because she was a, in pain from a minor accident. She mm. was a minor. And then she didn't understand and the doctor didn't understand. So she, well, the doctor told her, don't just quit. But she threw it away and then it showed her going through a withdrawal. Yeah. The problem is, I'm guessing that was after about eight weeks. And if, if that had been yeah. after one week, it would have been fine. But eight weeks, you've now triggered the yeah. illness. And so what happens is then those kids became a behavior problem. They start seeking other drugs. They start acting out. And no one recognizes that a doctor triggered addiction with the opiates months earlier. I saw right. tons of that. Oh, my God. Did I see a lot of that? Ch children, adolescents. I think you'll really like the show. What's that? <laughs> What's that? I think you'll really identify with the good. show. I think you'll that's get great. a lot out of it. Well, that's good news. Okay. All right. Well, thanks Thank for coming up so and much. saying hi. You bet. All right. Keep doing the good work. Thank you. And then that patient on methadone, be very careful. You got to get her down quickly. That stuff is a prison if you're not if you don't watch out. All right, uh, I think I'm going to wrap up. I, I think we kind of did what we needed to do today. Uh, Caleb, any questions or comments from your standpoint? Uh, not 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 from my end. Uh, just wanted to remind everybody on October 22nd we have uh, Greg Ellis coming in too. Yeah, Greg, Greg Ellis is coming back on Friday. Um, Casey Gates is putting up the SAMHSA helplines up there, 800-662-4357. Uh, so there's lots of, and there's lots of stuff, 12 stuff available online now. There's a lot of Zoom meetings. Yeah, Greg Ellis can be interesting. I asked him to think about the histrionic turn. I talked to a, another psychiatrist today on another podcast, and he was, he was observing the same thing I did. He, he was more thinking about how that all the delusionality, that the delusional uh, nature of our thinking in the last six to 12 months has been rather profound. And it, it reminded me, uh, he was trying to make the case. He, he was, he was, <laughs> he went to a pet shop and they tried to make him take a mat, wear a mask. And he said, I'm a woman and I have a mask on. I identify as a woman with a mask on. How dare you tell me I need to wear something that you call a mask. I identify as a mask wearer. And he was making, he was being facetious and silly, but it reminded me of a, of a quote from Abraham Lincoln and there must have been a lot of this kind of 
nonsense swir swirling or lack of truth, you know, lots of foundation, thinking of foundation and truth or mixing up language uh, in the roll-up to the Civil War because Lincoln is famous for having said to his cabinet members, he walked into the cabinet meeting one day and said, gentlemen, if I call a tr an elephant's trunk a leg, how many legs does that elephant have? Susan, if I call an elephant's trunk a leg, how many legs does that elephant have? Susan? Five. No, four, because calling it a leg does not make it a leg. Yeah. The elephant still has four legs. So his point was, apparently there was a lot of uh, manipulation of language back in those days that he was getting frustrated with. So just remind everybody that calling something so doesn't make it so. That's just uh, something to kind of kind of put in your quiver when you when you uh, get frustrated with some of the, the the silliness around language these days. All right, thank you to uh, Clubhouse. I'm going to end the Clubhouse room. We appreciate you guys being there. Uh, I'll be back again on Friday with Greg Ellis. And uh, as far as the restream, I've been watching you guys today. And thank you, thank Michelle Poe. Yeah, thank you, Michelle Poe, for Paula. setting up. Uh, she can. She not only puts together an amazing set, she is my booker. And thank you for uh, Caleb for doing back-to-back -back shows. We appreciate it very much. Yeah, I like that. And we'll be back. <laughs> Don't you? Yeah. And I hope we're going to get um, Brene Facade in here. I just saw another article about him that I just thought was so ridiculous. And I need to get his oh, point I don't of view. Know. I don't think oh, they haven't gotten back to us. I don't know why they're avoiding us. And then Art Kaplan, the, uh, I believe we got him scheduled too. He is, the, of course, a medical ethicist, been around for a long time. He's got some unusual opinions these days. I want to kind of thump on them a little bit. What's that, Susan? have to ask Michelle what's going on. With but that's next week. I'm, I'm We're still finishing up this week. So Okay. And you well, have a lot going on. We won't be here tomorrow or Thursday because Drew's going to be working on the MTV Teen, teen Mom Teen Mom reunion, everybody. We're going to do another reunion this, uh, this week, so we'll see how that goes. 24 hours. And uh, yeah, it's going to be, f it's it's 48 hours of straight work. That is uh, oh, heavy lifting. Hours. Heavy lifting. All right, everybody, thank you for being here, and we will see you on Friday. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Yeah.